our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but, but deliver, deliver us from, us from, from the evil one. one. Great to see you. If you've never met, my name's Jay. I'm a part of the team here. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Um, if you are new to us, uh, just a bit of an update. Since December of last year, we have been sort of slowly, steadily making our way through uh, the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel is a big fancy word that just means good news. And so Matthew, this author writes the good news of the story of Jesus, and we are, uh, we're in chapter 6. Now, there's 28 chapters in Matthew, so if you do the math, we joke about this all the time, I have no idea when we're going to finish, and that is okay. We're just enjoying the ride, and hopefully more than enjoying it, we're allowing this text, the story of this incredible person, Jesus, uh, we're allowing the story to wrap itself around us and hopefully change and transform us. And regardless of what you think or don't think, what you believe or don't believe about Jesus, one, we're just thrilled you're here. Maybe you're not Christian, maybe you're not religious, maybe a friend invited you or you're looking for some hope. Whatever brings you here, we are thrilled you're here. You are welcome here always. And again, whether you believe all of this Christian stuff about Jesus or not, my hope is that for the next 30, 40 minutes or so, as we deep dive into one particular section of this incredible story, that it holds some hope and meaning and transformative power for you. And then for most of us in the room who would consider ourselves followers of Jesus, I just think the section of Matthew that we are going to get into for the next four weeks uh, is a section of Matthew that we um, think we know so well because we've heard it, many of us have recited it a million times in our lives. It's the section of Matthew known as the Lord's Prayer. We just heard it in that introductory video. So to begin, what I would like to do is for all of us, again, whether you believe these words or not, for all of us to recite these words together. So they're gonna be on the screen and let's read it together, what is often called the Lord's Prayer. So out loud in one voice, let's read these words together. Ready? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Okay, how many of you guys are crying? Raise your hand if you're crying. How many of you are just like so deeply, incredibly moved right now? You don't know what to do with yourself. Raise your hand. Nobody. I don't say that to like instill any sort of guilt. Now, now maybe there are some of you who really are really moved right now, and you're too moved to raise your hand. But my guess is that for most of us, if not all of us in the room, in the theater, watching online, um, those are just kind of words. <laughs> They're just words we read because the guy up front with the microphone said, read these, right? 
This prayer has become so familiar that it's actually in many ways unfamiliar. There's this phenomenon in psychology called semantic satiation. And it's the phenomenon where a word or a phrase or an idea is so often repeated that it's robbed of its meaning. And this happens all the time, but I think it has most certainly happened with the Lord's Prayer. We, many of us, maybe not all of us, but many of us, are so familiar with these words. We have heard them, many of us have spoken them, prayed them so often in our lives that its power has been sapped. We read these provocative, incredible, earth-shattering, life-changing words and feel almost nothing. When I was a kid growing up, my mother um, made me pray the Lord's Prayer with her in Korean every night. I did that for like, I, you know, 15 years of my life. And remember, this was in Korean. And um, by the time I was a teenager, I literally did not even know what the words meant anymore. They were just sounds I made with my mouth. And I think in many ways, that's what's happened with the Lord's Prayer, semantic satiation. It, this powerful prayer has been robbed of its meaning. And so for the next four weeks, we are going to try to go sort of line by line, maybe not exactly line by line, maybe section by section, and try to re-engage the power of this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. And I think one of the most important elements of this prayer that we have lost is the importance of the order of the prayer. I mean, order really matters. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Jenny and I bought um, like a, a backyard patio umbrella, you know, to provide shade and sort of our backyard seating area. And so it was my job to build this patio umbrella. You've heard me say this before. I am not very good at building things with my hands. And so I'm already intimidated. I start building this thing. I'm like 30, 40 minutes into it. I'm sweating. I'm frustrated, and then it doesn't work right. Like, it's not moving the way it should. So I look back at the instruction manual, and I realize that I had skipped an entire page. I hadn't put certain screws in with the right washers and all of that. And so what do I do? I have to, like, undo everything, right? Because the order matters. Everything in me wanted it to just work. I was like, ah, that page is not that important, right? Just work. Can you just work? and provide shade, but the order matters. And so it is with this prayer. And here's what I mean. For most of us, again, not all of us, but for most of us, if we were to sort of summarize our most common prayers, not, not when we pray the Lord's Prayer, but like our actual prayers, the moments when we pray, however frequent or infrequent those may be, if we were to summarize most of our prayers, my guess is that for most of us, our prayers could be summarized in three specific ways. Most of the time when we pray to God, we pray something along the lines of, God, give us the stuff we need or want, right? That's a very common prayer in our lives. God, give us the stuff we need or want. It's never this crass, it's never this inconsiderate, but that's essentially what it comes down to so often. God, give us the stuff we need or the stuff we want. Sometimes we pray, very commonly, God, forgive us of the bad stuff we've done, right? Like we don't want God to hold it over us. We don't want to be judged or condemned. God, forgive us for the bad stuff we've done. And then often we pray, God, deliver us safely from harm's way. 
right? Keep bad stuff from happening to us. Protect us. Protect our loved ones. These are not bad prayers. These are great prayers. And in fact, these prayers are included in the prayer Jesus taught us to pray. Let me show you. We just read it. Let me show you again. Matthew 6, 11 to 13. Jesus teaches us to pray. Give us today our daily bread. So that's in there. Asking God for the stuff we need every day is in there. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us. So asking God to forgive us of the bad stuff we've done or whatever is in the Lord's prayer. And then finally, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Deliver me. Keep me from harm's way. Keep me from Satan's tactics to ruin my life. Give us, forgive us, deliver us. Those prayers are all in here. So when we pray those prayers, very commonly in our lives, we don't need to think like, oh, is this really the right way to pray? Is it okay for me to ask God to provide? Is it okay for me to ask God to forgive me and pardon me? Is it okay for me to ask God to keep me and my loved ones safe, to deliver us out of harm's way? Yes, it's more than okay. Those are a part of the prayer Jesus taught us to pray. But... This is the second half of the prayer. The prayer Jesus teaches us to pray does not begin with give us, forgive us, deliver us. Now for the next three weeks after today, we are going to deep dive into these prayers. Give us, forgive us, deliver us. Because they matter and they're important. But the order, it all begins with the order of the prayer. Give us, forgive us, deliver us are not the beginning of the prayer. The prayer begins elsewhere in a different way, which we'll get to. But the reason this is important is because when our prayer lives are primarily about give us, forgive us, deliver us, and when those prayers are detached from the opening lines of the Lord's prayer, here's the danger. Our view of God himself can get distorted. When our prayers are primarily about, God, give us the stuff we need or the stuff we want, often, if that's the only prayer you pray, we begin to see God as a genie. We begin to see God as a genie in a bottle that shows up when we need him to grant us our three wishes. God, today, here are the three things I need. A raise at my job, a girlfriend, and a nice 401k. He just becomes a genie in a bottle. Now, God wants to provide for you, but God is not a genie. The other issue, if most of our prayers are, God, forgive us for the bad stuff we've done, we begin to see God as a judge. We begin to believe that God is this domineering, angry, vindictive judge who holds a gavel, a hammer, and he just wants to slam you down for every wrong thing you've done. Forgiveness is critically important, and God longs to forgive and pardon us for the wrongs we've done. Again, we'll deep dive into these ideas in the coming weeks. But God's not primarily a judge. His posture toward us is not one of, of a judge who sits in the courtroom making sure that we are living uh, like perfect lives. He longs for so much more than that. Now, sin and wrongdoing is real. What I'm not saying is that God never judges us. The Bible is very clear. 
This whole concept of God's holiness is something that should um, evoke uh, awe and wonder and a, a holy, healthy sense of even fear. Not that we're afraid of God because he's angry, but that he is so holy and we're broken. Yet there's grace. And finally, if our prayers are primarily God deliver us safely out of harm's way, we begin to think of God just as a bodyguard, right? As like our security. I just kind of like navigate life, do what I want, go where I want, do as I please, go where as I please. And then God's job is to just stand watch, and make sure I'm safe. God wants to protect us from harm. He wants to keep us from temptation. But God is not primarily a bodyguard for you. He wants a relationship that is way more personal, way more intimate than that. These prayers, again, detached from the prayer as a whole, and in particular, detached from the opening lines of the Lord's Prayer, they paint an incomplete at best and a totally distorted and skewed, at worst, picture of who God is, and specifically, the type of relationship he longs to have with us. The scholar, theologian N.T. Wright, puts it this way, that if we approach the Lord's Prayer backward, then we are bound to make the mistake of reducing God's kingdom to, what, to God doing what we want him to do. If we skip the opening lines of the Lord's Prayer... And our prayer lives become only about God give us, forgive us, and deliver us. We can begin to believe the lie that God is simply here to do our bidding. But that's actually backward. God is God. We are not. And so then, how does the Lord's Prayer begin? It begins with these two profound words, our Father. So let's just spend a little bit of time on these two words. Our Father, first. God is our Father. Most of our prayer lives are pretty private. They're pretty personal. Most of us don't spend a lot of time praying corporately with others. And I, I actually think this is a part of the Christian tradition and the history of the Christian church that we have lost in our day and age. Now, personal private prayers are important. Jesus praise in personal, private, intimate ways uh, to and with God. So they're important. But we have to remember that the prayer Jesus taught us to pray, not just these opening words, our Father, but the entire prayer is plural. It's from the perspective of we, not me. God is our Father, Right? It's not just about me, it's about us. I am not an only child of God. We, all those who have said yes to Jesus, we are all children of God. Paul's words in Ephesians 2 are really profound here. Paul writes this, He, Christ himself, is our peace who has made the two groups, he's talking here about Gentiles and Jews who had real tension at the time, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose, Jesus' purpose, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, 
by which he put to death their hostility. God has put to death our hostility through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we, plural, have access to the Father, singular, by one spirit, singular. Let me say that again. We, plural, have access to the Father, singular, through one spirit, singular. The many are made one in the family of God, and the prayer Jesus teaches us to pray emphasizes this point. Jesus does not teach us to pray, my Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He teaches us to pray, our Father, plural, our Father in heaven. Praying the Lord's Prayer begins with the understanding that we stand on level ground. Despite our differences and distinctions, all those who are in Christ are a single family with a single father by one spirit, all together collectively. Again, despite our differences and distinctions, one family of sons and daughters living under the common grace of God our Father. That's how the prayer begins. It's communal. You belong to a family. Which leads us to the second word. He is our Father. John chapter 1. To all who did receive him, that's Jesus, all who received Jesus, to those who believed in Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God. We are children of God, and he is our Father. He's not a genie in a bottle here to grant us our wishes. He's not a judge here to lord it over us and make sure we dot all our I's and cross all our T's. He's not primarily a bodyguard here to help you navigate your life and keep you safe and comfortable. He is our Father. Now, this is really challenging because maybe for some of you who are um, uh, in the room, some of you in the theater or watching online, Maybe like me, you didn't have a father growing up. So this is a really difficult metaphor to connect to. Or maybe you had a father who was physically present but absent in so many other ways. Or maybe you had an awesome dad and he loved you and cared for you and still does. Or maybe you had some mixture of something in between. But wherever you are in your story, whatever your story with your own earthly father, even if you had an awesome father who was loving and caring, even that man was full of flaws. Nobody here would argue that point. The problem is you and I, we often project, I do this all the time, I often project my earthly father onto God. I allow my experience, my history, my broken story with my father on earth, and I project those characteristics and personality traits and that narrative, I project it onto God. When in fact, it should be God, our heavenly father, who shines a light on earthly fathers and mothers to paint a picture for what we all ought to aspire to. 
Now, that might like literally be for you as a parent right now, or it might be for you as like a spiritual father or a spiritual mother for someone in your life who really needs that. But so often we do this. We project our earthly experiences onto God and we assume, well, if God is my father, he must be like my earthly father who failed me, who struggled, who wasn't there for me in the ways that I really needed him to. When in reality, what we ought to do is allow God as, an, as our heavenly father to shine a light on us as earthly fathers and earthly mothers. Again, literally as fathers and mothers, and also maybe as a spiritual father or a spiritual mother to somebody in need in your life. And so what kind of father is God? Now there's like so much, there's a whole other teaching we could talk about, but this is actually, you know, like we're talking about the Lord's Prayer. So let me just very quickly summarize. Two weeks ago, if you were here, Steve taught this long section of Matthew chapter five. And toward the end, he read this verse, Matthew five, verse 48. Your heavenly father is perfect. This is the sort of father God is. Now, this is not helpful for some of us. Because many of us in the room, not all of us, but many of us grew up in like an honor-shame culture. I grew up in that sort of culture. Um, Asian, Asian American cultures are very much, Eastern cultures in general, are very much honor-shame. And so when we hear a word like perfect, for me, what I hear is perfectionism. So when I read these words, your heavenly father is perfect, what I hear is, oh, God wants me to get um, a 4.5 GPA and go to Harvard, right? I did neither of those things. I did not get that sort of GPA, and I clearly, I did not go to Harvard. I went to De Anza College, which was a fantastic school. So in many ways, in my honor-shame culture, like, De Anza College, are you kidding me? I was like a failure. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, what, what are you going to do with your life? You know? Okay, so when we hear the word perfect, many of us think that. Like, oh, no, that's not good. I don't want God as a father to be that. I had that, and that was really broken and flawed, and it damaged me. But if you remember back to two weeks ago, again, Steve talked about this. This word perfect is the Greek word teleos, from which we get the English word telos. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a complex word, and it's not used in common nomenclature, so you may not be familiar with it. But the word telos does not mean perfect as in perfectionism. It doesn't even mean perfect as in performance. The word telos actually means complete, whole, and so what this passage is saying is not that God, your heavenly father, is a perfectionist. What it's telling us is God, your heavenly father, is the complete, whole, ultimate vision for what a good father should be. So God, our heavenly father, is perfect. In other words, God is whole. He's complete, he is the ultimate picture of what a good, loving father ought to be. And what does this God, who is whole and complete and perfect, the ultimate picture of what a good father should be, what does this God do for us? He sends his own son to die on our behalf when none of us deserved it. That's the sort of father we have. 
Many of you know um, Rembrandt's famous painting. It might actually be Rembrandt's most famous painting called The Return of the Prodigal Son. I'll show it to you here on the screen. Many of you know this painting, right? This painting depicts the moment in the prodigal son story. If you're unfamiliar, this is a parable that Jesus tells to depict what sort of God, uh, what sort of father God actually is. He tells this parable about how this son is just absolutely selfish and horrific to his dad and essentially tells his dad, dad, I wish you were dead. Just give me my inheritance so I can go live my life. I hate you. And this loving father, heartbroken, says, okay, I can't force you to love me. So this loving father gives this son his inheritance. This son runs off, spends and squanders all of his wealth until one day he finds himself literally in the dirt with the pigs. And then he says this, this son, broken and distraught, he says, okay, I will set out and go back to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So this son, he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is the sort of father we have. The sort of father who, even when we are at our worst, is so ready and willing to embrace us when we return. And so the Lord's prayer begins there with a recognition that God is not a genie in a bottle to grant us wishes, nor a judge to forgive and pardon our wrongdoing, nor a bodyguard to just keep us safe and comfortable through life. He does all of those things, but not as a genie, a judge, or a bodyguard. He does those things because he's this kind of father, because he loves us, because he longs to be near to us, and he longs for us to draw near to him. But notice in the prodigal son story, the father embraces the son when? When the son returns. The father does not go out to the dumps, to the pigsty to grab his son. The son makes the decision to return to the father. And when the son returns, this loving father embraces him with open arms. A loving father does not mean a compromising father. Those of you who are parents in the room, you'll be able to relate to this. If all you did was allow your children to do whatever they wanted to do, is that loving? No. In fact, in so many ways, that would be the epitome of being unloving, right? We see this in the next section of the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, 9 and 10. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We could spend years literally just talking about these lines. 
That word hallowed in the Greek is a word that means to honor or to set apart, to treat with the highest respect. And actually the phrase, hallowed be your name, is actually quite misunderstood. The best translation of the phrase in the original language of the text wouldn't actually be hallowed be your name, but rather hallow your name. The prayer technically is, our Father in heaven, hallow your name. In other words, this prayer is a petition to God to hallow, to hold in high regard and set apart and honor his own name. What does this mean? The theologian Scott McKnight, he explains it this way. He says that in the Bible and in ancient Judaism, the name represents the person and that person's character. Names are really important in the ancient world. And this petition, hallow your name or hallowed be your name, is a prayer that God will act in a way that glorifies himself. What Jesus has in mind is clear. He wants God to act to bring in the kingdom in order to display God's rule. In other words, hallowed be your name isn't a personal commitment I'm making to honor God. That's how we often understand it. Now, that's not unimportant. As a Christian, that is a commitment we have to make. But in this particular prayer, that is not what Jesus is saying. The the invitation is not to pray a personal commitment that I am going to hallow God's name. Rather, the prayer, hallowed be your name, or God, my heavenly Father, hallow your name, is a petition. It's an ask of God to act and move in such a way, for God to act and move in such a way that his name be honored throughout the earth. This is why it's followed up by your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I am asking God, my heavenly father, to hallow, to honor his own name. And the way God does that is for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. Not my will, not the kingdoms of the earth, not the kingdoms of Silicon Valley or culture at large, but God's will and God's kingdom to come and to be done here on earth, in Silicon Valley, in my home, in my workplace, in our church, as it is in heaven. That's what we pray. God, my heavenly Father, hallow your name. There's this ancient text, Zechariah 14, this prophetic text. It says, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. This is what every Christian, every person really, even if they don't know it, wants. Why? Because when God's name is hallowed, when God, our heavenly father, rules and reigns as king over the whole earth, when his kingdom comes and his will is done here on earth as it is in heaven, This is what it looks like. And it's a passage we read here at Westgate often. And maybe you're tired of it because I cite it at least once a month, but too bad. This is my hope in life. So I'm going to cite it all the time. What does it look like when God's kingdom comes and his will is truly done on earth as it is in heaven? It looks like this incredible vision of that coming day in Revelation 21. The writer John has a vision. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is now among the people. God comes to dwell among us. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. That's what it looks like when God, our heavenly father, when his kingdom truly comes and his will is truly done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's how the prayer Jesus taught us to pray begins. We open with a recognition that we are not praying to a genie who grants us wishes or a judge who pardons us our wrongdoing or a bodyguard who simply keeps us safe and comfortable. We are praying to a father who longs to provide, a father who longs to forgive and pardon, a father who longs to keep us safe and secure for sure. But we are praying to a father, a father who loves us, desires nearness to us, personal, intimate relationship with us. And we are praying that that father, who is a good father and a good king, that his rule and reign would begin to take over the planet. That this place we call home now begins to look more and more like the kingdom of God. And as we pray that prayer, you guys, it is a dangerous prayer because you are essentially saying yes then to God's invitation to be the sort of person who embodies God's kingdom and embodies God's will here on earth as it is in heaven. You are saying, I am your son, I am your daughter, I am a part of this great global family that is the family of God, and yes, I want God's kingdom to come, his will to be done, and I will play my part in that story. God is a good king. God is a good father. That's who we pray to in the Lord's Prayer. Our good king and our good father. I'm going to invite the team to come back up. We're going to sing and respond here in a moment. But before we do, um, you know, before uh, service started today, I was out in our courtyard. Some of our staff were out there. And my friend, my friend John, who was a part of our staff, he was out there um, with his son, Elijah, who's, I think, three. Is Elijah three, Jenny? Two? Two and a half or three? John, are you in here? He's not in here. He probably left because I made him mad. You'll know why in a second. <laughs> I'm out there with Elijah. Now, John and his wife, Vicki, and their little kids are in our life group as well. So um, they're, they're a family I dearly love, and I love little Elijah. And if you've never met Elijah, he's like the cutest little boy you've ever seen in your life. So I haven't seen Elijah in probably months now is what it feels like. So I saw him. I went up to him. I'm like, Elijah, how you doing, buddy? And John's like, oh, say hi to Uncle Jay or whatever. We're high-fiving. And in my mind, he's so cute, and I've missed him so much, a high-five is not enough, you know? So I'm like, come here, give me a hug. And so he comes in and he gives me a hug, which is kind of surprising. He's like, oh, my gosh, he's familiar with me. So I pick him up, and the moment I pick him up, he's ready to go. He was like, whoa, dude, don't pick me up. Like, <laughs> that was just like, I, I know we're buddies, but we're not like that close, you know? So I pick him up and he's ready to go. And instead of just letting him go, I was like, where are you going, bud? 
I missed you. And then he just starts bawling his eyes out. I was like, oh, that's not what I intended to do. So I put Elijah down, and what does he do? What do you think he did? He runs to his dad. It's like instinctively in his body and bones when there is a scary man, right? It's not quite stranger danger. We're friends. But still, it's like this dude is too excited to see me. It's weird. What does he do in fear, anxiety, uncertainty? What does he do? He runs to his father, right? Okay, that's the Lord's prayer. Whatever you're going through, this is why we recite the prayer over and over, because we want the truth to embed itself in our body and bones. You want the words you say to be imbued with such meaning that anytime there is uncertainty or fear or anxiety, uncertainty about what is happening in the world, uncertainty about what is happening in your life or in your heart and mind, you want this prayer, I want this prayer to be so deeply in my body and bones, so deeply in my soul that what I do is to run to my heavenly father. Our Father, regardless of what is happening on, on the planet and in my world, may your kingdom come and your will be done. God, hallow your name. Honor your name. Make this place look more and more like the place you've meant for it to be. And make me, help me look more and more like the person you've called me to be. That's how the prayer begins. So I want to invite you to stand. Let's all stand together. And we read this prayer at the beginning of this teaching, and most of us felt nothing. I want us to quietly, well, not quietly, out loud, but I want us to quiet our hearts and minds and read the opening lines that we just explored together about our good king, our good father, and then sing in response to that father. Let's read with everything we have in our souls. Let's read and pray this prayer out loud together. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.